Please remain standing with me as we read God's Word together. I encourage you to turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we went through 1 Thessalonians last week, and we talked about how this is a letter from a guy named Paul, who after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he was called into ministry to share the good news about what Jesus accomplished through his life and his death with not only Jewish folks, but also the Gentile world. And he goes on a missionary journey, and he is, spends time in Thessalonica for three consecutive Sundays, maybe a month overall. And while he is there, he helps to establish this church, and he's writing to them yet again. Uh, because as we're going to see, they got some disturbing news supposedly from him, and he is correcting that. But I want to read to you the first ten verses of Second Thessalonians. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. We read that not only Paul is writing, but he has some associates with him that are helping with this letter and helping get the letter to them. So he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who cause you trouble and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will put those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will punish, excuse me. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all who who have believed. This includes you, because you have believed our testimony to you. This is a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Hey, today we do have Kingdom Kids, which is our ministry for kiddos who've aged out of the nursery at four years old, but have, uh, oh, thank you. But may enjoy a little time together learning and worshiping at their level. So if we have any children four years old through second grade, they can head out over here to our kingdom with our kingdom kids workers. Uh, they're going to be next door in the downstairs of our education building. And so your parents just go by and pick them up afterwards. There are some instructions on the door on how to get in if you need to go by before service is out. Because those doors are locked for safety. Or you can go back through the hallway this way as well if you need to pick up a kiddo today. All right. Okay, so many of you know we're doing a read through the Bible year in a year plan together. We are uh, in the New Testament this year. We were in the Old Testament last year. And so each week I'm preaching from something we read the previous week. And when we get to these shorter letters, particularly from Paul, it's kind of like a one sermon to cover the whole letter. So that's what we're doing today. And so you've read through First Thessalonians, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. This is a pair of letters. I've already kind of given you a little bit of an introduction about who wrote it. I haven't talked to you about why yet. I talked about that last week. Uh, but let me say this. You know, this is 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are considered the earliest letters, maybe the earliest writing of the entire New Testament. 
And so uh, Paul is writing to this church because he knows that they're going through persecution. He knows it firsthand because when he was in the city of Thessalonica, he's preaching the name of Jesus. They tried to, you know, kill him. So he has to run. He has to run for the hills, you know. And so after he leaves, he's still concerned about these people. And he says, you know, I, I need to see how they're doing. And so he hears that, you know, they're going through persecution. They, they have said to the Roman world, which was the governing, you know, uh, higher ups over them. Listen, Rome, I know you have a Caesar that you consider to be the king of all kings, but Jesus is our king. He is the king of all kings. And so you had this civic tension that, that they did not recognize Caesar as the king of all kings, but you had also religious tension. In the Roman world, you had lots of gods. And different cities would have gods and different causes or, or needs that you would have would have different gods. And, and they said, listen, we've only got one God, God the Father, and we worship him and his son. And we do that through the Holy Spirit. And so when they said we only have one God, that was to thumb their nose at the Roman world who had lots of gods. Not only that, but they had tension within kind of the roots of their own beliefs with the Jewish folks because Christianity is a fulfillment of Jewish hope. But not all the Jewish people saw it that way. A lot of the Jewish people saw it very, very differently than that. They thought that if you were worshiping Jesus, it was akin to worshiping a different God than the God they would call Yahweh. We just sang the name Yahweh, right? That, that was the name that they gave God the Father, creator of all that there is. And I can understand their confusion because in Christian theology, it does get a little confusing. It is a little hard for us to compute in our minds how we do have one God, but he exists in the three persons of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And, the, and there's many Jewish folks in their day, including today, that had a hard time with that. And so, so not only so much of a hard time is that they would persecute their fellow Jewish people who said, we believe in Jesus as the Son of our Father in heaven. He had all that stuff going on. Paul witnessed it firsthand. He knew there was trouble, and so he writes that first letter. Well, after that first letter, evidently, somehow, they got word from someone pretending to be Paul, saying to them, listen, Jesus has already come back. It's already taken place. Now, just think about that for a second. I know not, not all of you, maybe uh, you don't, uh, haven't been around church just a whole lot. Maybe you don't know some of these things I'm going to talk about, and that's okay. I'm so glad you're here that you get to hear some of this. But they believed that Jesus would be coming back, that Jesus would return. Because, you know, when the Messiah comes, that means one who is anointed. That's the same uh, word. That's the Hebrew word. In Greek, it's Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the king of all kings. When, when the king sent from God comes, one who is greater than David. You know David and Goliath? You know that guy? One who's even greater than Goliath. Or, or one that's greater than David. When he comes and he sits on the throne, he's going to make everything right. And let me ask you, when you look around in the world today, does it look like everything's been made right yet? doesn't, does it? That's the tension they felt. Well, Jesus came. He's the king of all kings, but... The world isn't made right yet. And so what they came to understand is that it's not going to play out the way you think it's going to play out. They thought king is going to come, sit on the throne, everything's going to be made right. Boom, we're, we're off to an eternal kingdom where God's justice is perfectly done now and forever. That's how they anticipated things to go. But that's not what God had planned. And let me tell you, what we covered last week in 1 Thessalonians and what we're going to talk about this week, when we talk about the end of time as we know it and the return of Jesus 
There's going to be a lot of people who say, we know how it's going to play out. And I doubt any of them are any smarter than the people in the Bible. Those folks, especially the Jewish folks, especially the Pharisees, which is a sect of Judaism, they knew their Bible, front and back. If you, if you were a Pharisee, it means you memorized large chunk, chunks, if not all, of the Old Testament. I mean, they were impressive people. They knew their scriptures. And it didn't play out the way they thought it was going to play out. You have a king who came and died and rose again. And he promises to come back again. Now, why would God do that except that he wanted more people in the kingdom? He wanted more people to hear the good news. He wanted to give people a chance to choose to follow King Jesus. And so God delays. God tarries. In our, in our world, it seems that through, through our lens, through the way we see things, it seems like he's taking his time. But he is for his purposes and his reasons. Now, in the New Testament, they thought Jesus was going to come back right then. But again, they would have been surprised to know 2,000 years later, he still hadn't returned. But we believe he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to make all things right. But think about this. Imagine if I were able to stand up here and tell you persuasively that actually he did come back and we missed the boat. That would be troubling, wouldn't it? Like if I could really convince you of that, if I I could somehow you know, uh, say the right words and give the right proof to show you that he had returned and we missed it? Wouldn't that trouble you? Well, that's what's happening in Thessalonica. They have been told that Jesus has come. The second coming has occurred. And these people who are telling them that are pretending to be Paul. Now, keep in mind, you know, Paul is the one who has helped start this church, right? And so, so they have that that expectation that, that Paul is going to steer him in the right direction. They're looking at Paul as like a father figure in the faith. And so they would have listened to him. And so they were very troubled by this. Paul catches wind of it. And he responds by sending the letter Second Thessalonians. I didn't anticipate to give such a long introduction. But I think sometimes it's helpful to kind of know some of the background of what's take, taking place when we read the Bible. Um, so usually I give a short introduction and then we pray. But that was a very long introduction and I haven't prayed yet, and I want to make sure we pause and go to the Lord together. So, let's do that. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your Holy Spirit who works through ordinary people to bring us the Word. To write down the truth that we find in you, so that thousands of years later we can still read that truth. Help us to embrace that truth, to believe it. And to live in light of what we see in your scriptures. Father, we confess that often we, we think we know better. We think we know. We think we have information. We think we see things right. But as your children, we are trusting that, that if you have something to say that's different than how we think, you should correct us. Humble us. Father God, that we may be corrected by your word. But God, because it is your word, we also know it comes from a loving father. So help us, God, to to be comforted and encouraged by your word. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Second Thessalonians is a pretty short uh, letter. It's three chapters long. But if you didn't read it, let me encourage you, go read it. Because it says some pretty interesting things, right? So 
Paul is trying to address this issue that others have come and said the return of Jesus has already taken place. And Paul writes and says emphatically, no, it hasn't. And he gives them some reasons to, to uh, believe that it hasn't. And what's, what's kind of interesting to me is Paul was there, we're told, three Sabbaths, which was like a Jewish you know, Sunday. It was their day of worship, sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. He was there three Sabbaths, maybe a whole month. Then he's run out of town. And he refers back to the things he taught them while with them. Now what that tells me is that the return of Jesus was an important part of Paul's theology. So important that only given a month's time with them, he wanted to make sure that they understood as much as could be understood that yes, in fact, Jesus will come back and set up his reign as king of all kings on this earth in which justice will be done. Now that was important for the, for the Thessalonians to know also because they're going through persecution. Right? We've already covered that. And Paul says, listen, we read it in the first 10 verses. He says, listen, when Jesus comes back, when he's revealed from heaven, blazing fire and powerful angels, he says in verse 7, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about punishing those who are punishing the Christians out of hate and evil in their heart. Now, that may sound a little strange to us in our culture. You know, we just love everybody. Everybody should get along. Uh, But if you've ever had evil truly done to you, and there is no justice to be had, there's an ache in your soul. There's an ache for justice to be done. And that is not a bad thing. Revengeance, the scriptures tell us, that we have no place to dwell on revengeance, but to desire the justice of, of God here on earth and forever in glory is a good thing. And Paul is comforting them. He's letting them know, I know people are causing you a lot of trouble. In fact, some of them have been killed because of their faith. We talked about that in the first letter. He says, but listen, justice is coming. God is going to make things right. Even those who have done evil, who seem to have power over you, they will be put in their place One day. But that day has not yet come. And that's the issue he's addressing. They they were falsely led to believe by someone pretending to be Paul that that day had come. But he gives two reasons. And this is something we haven't read yet. So look at chapter 2 with me. And we're going to look at the two reasons Paul gives to show the Thessalonians that no, Jesus has in fact not returned yet. First of all, he talks about in verse 3. Well, let me just start in verse 1. He says, concerning... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teachings allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Then he says this, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until two things, okay? Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So he gives two things that must take place before the return of Jesus. And this is how they could know that no, Jesus has in fact not come back. One, the rebellion. Two, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So let's talk about this rebellion thing very briefly. 
Uh, some would say that that's the apostasy. It's called a great apostasy. That's a fancy word just to say those who believe in God turn their back on God. Or those who seem to believe in God turn their back on God. That a whole bunch of people, Christians, as well as Jewish Christians, who said they believed would all of a sudden not believe. That's one way to read it. But from what I've studied, it seems more likely that this is a worldwide rebellion against God, which has really been taking place since the fall of humanity. That it is going to get worse, that more and more people are going to ignore God, thumb their nose at God, uh, and you know, live however they want to live, and you know, disregard the, the principles that God has laid out, the laws that God has laid out in Scripture, that that is the great rebellion. Now, we can see some of that in the world today. This is what's hard, is that a lot of this you could apply today, but, you know, they could have applied it in their day as well. So, so it's not, you know, as clear-cut as, as we may read it in this scripture and say, well, there you go. That's what's got it. Well, how do you know? How, how do you know that you've had not just a mini-rebellion, but a great rebellion? How do you know you've kind of reached the zenith of it, the maximum limit of rebellion in the world? How do you know when you've hit that marker? And so it's not entirely clear what that's going to look like, but we know that that's going to take place, that the world is going to increasingly ignore God, to put it lightly, to thumb their nose at him, right? He said, but there's a second thing that's going to happen, is is there's going to be this man of lawlessness. In In other words, someone who feels as if the law does not apply to them, right? And I know what you're saying, hey, I'm I'm related to someone like that, okay? But, but it's, you know, it's a lot worse than that. It's not just that. It's a lot worse than that. In fact, if you've ever heard the term antichrist before, have you ever heard that term before, antichrist? It sounds scary, right? I mean, that's a pretty frightening word. I mean, it, what does it mean? It means exactly what it sounds like, someone who is the complete opposite of Jesus, antichrist, right? And so you see that term throughout the New Testament here and there. That's the same guy that Paul's talking about, the man of lawlessness. Man of lawlessness, same guy as the Antichrist. Now, this would have been something that they would have recognized in their day. Because they saw someone coming and doing the things Paul talks about. Right? Look at it with me uh, again in verse, uh, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. This man of lawlessness, he's referring to, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So this is a person who has given way for the evil of the devil to take control of their life. So much so that they would reach the point where they would want to be worshipped as God. That's the man of lawlessness. That's the Antichrist. And I would guarantee you that the folks in Thessalonica would have heard that and said, That sounds familiar. We've seen guys like that already. I often mention to you guys how, how helpful a study Bible is. And I use one, I use multiple study Bibles as well as commentaries every week to prepare sermons. And so I, I just want to share something from one of the study Bibles that, that I often give away, the NIV Biblical, Theolo- uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible, because it's really helpful. It points out that what this, this lawless man, this antichrist that Paul is talking about here in Thessalonians chapter 2, sounds a lot like some other folks. One of them being Antiochus, who desecrated the Jerusalem temple in 167 B.C. So this is, this is roughly a couple hundred years before Jesus is born. And this guy takes over this area of the world where, where the temple is, which is in Jerusalem, right? 
And he goes in and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple to the god Zeus, which is a Roman god. These were big time no-nos. I mean, you just, there's, no one could conceive that anyone would ever do that for fear of God striking them dead on the spot. This was a huge deal. That someone would be brazen enough to do that. Who would do that but someone who was lawless? Someone who thought that they were above God and can do whatever they wanted. And I, and I would be willing to bet that when the Thessalonians heard about this lawless man, they would have said, yeah, we've seen guys like that. Antiochus being one of them. There's also a Roman general named Pompey who entered Jerusalem about 63 B.C. And you as a Gentile person could not enter the temple. And the Temple Mount is a huge complex. It's not just like a little building. And there's all these different layers to it. And there is a point in which Gentiles could not go. And this Roman general Pompey entered into that temple beyond where a Gentile could go. And then you had the Roman emperor Caligula. You may have heard that name before. And his desire was to set up a statue of himself in the temple. Why would you do that in the temple if you did not want to be worshipped in the temple as a god? And Paul is simply saying here, as has happened in the past, it's going to happen in the future. And one day there will be one who puts all these other people to shame. That, that they are going to do some things that are far beyond what other evil human leaders who thought they were God did. And if that guy hasn't come yet, then Christ hasn't returned yet. That's going to be like the, the peak of evil in the world. And there's going to be this, again, Antiochus, they referred to him sacrificing the pig on the altar to Zeus as, uh, as the desolation of the temple. And there's going to be another guy who does that kind of thing. And it's just some wonder, like, what does that mean? Is it literally going to happen at the temple in Jerusalem? Or is that a spiritual way of talking about the church? It's not entirely clear. But what is clear is that this guy, this man of lawlessness, he's destined to destruction. Evil will not win in the end. So we might get anxious about evil today. We might look in the world and see evil winning today. And we might even get worried about what it's going to look like in the day that Paul's describing. But what we know for sure, oh, there's a lot, I will tell you, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of people who think they know. But I think more accurately, there's a lot we don't know. But the things that we do know are super important. Evil in the end does not win. No matter how bad things look now. Where do we see that? Verse 8. Look at that with me in chapter 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Just to be in the presence of Jesus leaves no room for any evil. That this greatest evil person that probably that has ever existed will be destroyed simply because Jesus shows up. And this is the good news that we have. And this is the good news that Paul is encouraging them with. 
Uh, there's a whole section here. I'm going to skip this, but let me, let me just encourage you. There's a whole section here that talks about that there's someone who restrains this lawless man. It's most likely a reference to the archangel Michael. Um, there's other options to interpret who is restraining the lawless man. Grab a study Bible and read about that. I think it will be really helpful. If you don't have one, let me know, okay? I'll be glad to help you with it, all right? Uh, but I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I want to continue in looking at what Paul says here. Because there's some things that Paul says here towards the end of chapter 2 that can be kind of disturbing to us, I think. Because when Jesus comes, he's not only going to destroy the lawless one. Jesus is going to come and he is going to bring justice here on earth. The people that who were uh, persecuting the Christians in Thessalonica, they're going to be on his list as those who will be punished. But then Paul picks this idea back up after talking about the lawless one. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 10. Pick up in the middle of verse 10. He talks about that when Jesus returns, that there are going to be those who are deceived. They perish, middle of verse 10 of chapter 2. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they may believe the lie. Because the lawless one is going to be be able to deceive many. And we read there he's going to be able to perform signs and wonders in order to deceive. And this brings up the issue of hell because that's what Paul is writing about. He's talking about hell. When he talks about a punishment like this, he is talking about hell. And again, in our world today, we don't like to think about hell. I don't. It's not like my favorite topic, I promise you. It's not something I like to sit around and think about. Right? You're probably in the same boat as me, right? That hell's not just a pleasant topic. You're not just having a dinner party and just say, hey, so what do you think about hell? Right? We don't do that, right? It's, it's an ugly reality. And sometimes when we talk about hell, one of the challenges we think, well, if we have an all loving God who is supposed to be a God of grace, how is it possible that there could even be a hell? Shouldn't he forgive everyone? And I think what the scripture is teaching us here is that God is able and willing and will forgive everyone who wants forgiveness. But not everybody wants forgiveness. He will receive into his family, his sons and daughters, everyone who wants to be his son and daughter. But not everyone wants to be his son and daughter. Right? This is the hard reality of hell, is that there will be no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. And there will be no one in hell who decided on earth that they would rather be in heaven with Jesus. In the end, this is a saying I've heard before that's helpful to think about. In the end, those who refuse to say in their life to God, thy will be done, in the end will hear from God, thy will be done. In other words, on earth we have an opportunity to receive or reject God. And when the time comes that we pass from this life to the next, God is not going to force us to change our mind on the decision we made on the years here on earth. This is our chance to choose. And let me tell you, you don't know when that day is going to come. Some of you may be putting off that decision to give your life to God. You just need a little bit more time, but no time is promised to us. What, what Paul is saying here 
is that either by death or here specifically by the return of Jesus, we will face judgment day. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, we should see that person looking right back at us. If there's any hope for us, it's going to be in the form of mercy and grace. That there is not a possibility where God meets us in our judgment and says, you know what? You actually did perfectly well. You never did anything wrong. The only people who are ever going to hear that are those who die, unfortunately, before they are accountable for their sin, like a child or a baby. Those are the only ones. Everybody else. Once you are accountable for your decisions, everybody else. We will either hear a word of grace through Christ because we've entrusted our lives with Jesus, or we will hear the pronouncement of judgment. And Paul is letting them know that day is coming. And he wants them to know. And it gets a little confusing because it says in verse 11, For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Again, the lie that is being, uh, that is being put out there by uh, the lawless one, the Antichrist. God delivers this delusion. But what happens before that? Before the delusion is given over, Paul says very clearly that it's those who have refused to love the truth and so be saved. Into verse 10 in chapter 2. So we make the decision first and then God says, okay, that's your decision. Then that is your future. And so it brings us to a moment where we have to ask, well, what's our decision? What, what do, where do we stand with this? God's judgment were to come today. If Christ did return today, are we prepared to meet him? And what scripture teaches us is that we are able to stand in the presence of God with confidence that we get to be let into his glorious heaven forever. Not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done. That he has brought us into the family of God. And all our response to the gift of grace is to believe. And then live in light of that belief. And that gets us to in the meantime. Paul is, Paul is writing here talking about end time things. We don't know when that day is going to come. Uh, scripture indicates that you can see signs. Even Paul talks about it here in chapter 1. But to be certain of when it's going to ex- exactly take place, we don't know. But we have to live ready. We have to live ready. I think there's a Coach Prime quote in there somewhere. You don't have to get ready if you live ready, right? Come on, somebody. Anybody? Yeah, that's pretty good, right? He's going to be a preacher one day, I think. But he is a believer. But we have to live ready because we don't know. And so tucked into this letter, throughout this letter, there's some super encouraging things that I want to close with. Because I want us to ponder these things. I want us to think about these things. Because in the midst of some pretty serious stuff, some pretty heavy stuff. Paul says some of the most encouraging things that we need to hear. Let's take a look at them. Three and then a fourth, okay? Three and then a fourth. The first one is this. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. So then, 
Okay, he's gone through all the really tough stuff. And then he says, so then, that's important to pay attention to. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we pass on to you. What do we do in the meantime? As we wait for that judgment day, for the return of Christ, or even for our own death when we pass from this life to the next, what do we do? Paul says, Stand firm. And specifically, he links the standing firm to the word of God. And so if I could give you this encouragement, as we wait, invest your time and energy in studying and memorizing and meditating on the word of God. A 30 or 40 minute sermon, no matter how great this is, and this is great. Come on, this is like A plus. This is the best I got, at least. Right? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay. I didn't mean for it to go there. All right. (laughs) This is not enough. An hour-long Bible study on Sunday morning, as great as that is to sit with others and study the Word of God, is not enough. To come on Wednesday night with our children and our teens is not enough. We have to invest our lives in the reading, the study, the memorizing, the meditation of God's Word. And you say, I don't know where to start. I say, it's okay. We got a plan. Pick up a Bible reading plan. Start on tomorrow's reading. That's all you got to do. It's already mapped out for you. Just do it. So Paul says, as you wait, stand firm. And he links that to the word of God. So the word of God, standing firm in the word of God. That's first. Second, prayer. In the midst of all this, we're going to see this throughout uh, 2 Thessalonians. If you go back and read it, you'll see that there's prayer woven throughout. But look where he places some prayer remarks It's after all those things in chapter 3. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us. So he asks for prayer. As you wait, would you pray for us? That's what he says. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. Now that makes total sense to me. Because if Jesus is coming, we don't just want to be ready ourselves. We want the world to be ready. We want everybody we know to be as ready as they can be. What does that mean? It means they need to hear about the hope of Jesus. And he says, so pray that as we're out there sharing the word of Jesus, that it would be effective. And, and so can you pray for people like your missionaries? People like those who are delivering the word of God and sharing the word of God. Can you pray for your own opportunities in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, that you might be able to effectively share the good news of Jesus? But he also prays that they will be delivered from the wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. So what does he say? He says, listen, God is going to bring justice, but we can hope in that and we know that's coming. But there's no reason not to pray for justice now. And so that's exactly what he says. So the first one, what do we do in the meantime? We're waiting on Christ's return or we're waiting to meet him in our death. As serious as that is, that just shows us how serious we need to take Paul's words. And he says, first, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings, the word of God. Second, pray. The third, work. It's kind of an interesting thing. Why work? You find this in the middle of chapter 3. What seems to have taken place here is that they were so ready for the return of Jesus that some people just said, like, and and this is the truth of it, like, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, are you clocking in? Huh? Are you? No. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I'm not going to work, right? And, And they believed it so much that that's what a good group of them did. They just quit working. 
They just quit showing up to work, doing their job, doing things to provide for themselves and others. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There's so much here to say, but we don't have time for it. But the basic point is, he says, I laid down this rule while I was there, and that rule has not been lifted. What is the rule? Into verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. He says, look at my example. I worked with, I worked while I was with you so that I would not be a burden to you. In that way, I set an example for you. That example stands. Get to work. And there's paid work and there's unpaid work. There, there's, there, there's all kinds of different kinds of work that benefits you, your family, and those around you and your community. Be about that work. Be about that work. Don't give up on that. Just waiting around for the return of Jesus or for your death. If you're still living, God still has a purpose for you. And there are still things he wants you to do. Seek him for that and do those things. And you will be a blessing to others and you will honor God. So he says, in the meantime, the word of God, prayer, and work. Be about those things. And then the last thing. The last thing is this. Is that I think Paul knew, you know, this is so heavy and this is so important and this is such a challenging message that he had to deliver. He wanted to also encourage and assure them. And I want to look at a few of those. Here's what I want to do. This is maybe a little bit different and we're running out of time. But I just want you to hear what Paul says without a lot of commentary from me. Okay. I just want to read over you. Paul's words of encouragement and affirmation. So this may be a little awkward, but I just want you to just kind of close your eyes. So just so you so block out the distractions as much as possible. And let's just hear the word of God. Because how many of us came in anxious today about the future and what it holds in our lives? And maybe even the end of all things or the end of things as we know it or, or whatever it might be. We need to hear these words of God through Paul, words of encouragement and assurance. So just join with me in hearing from God. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. And in every way. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. May our God, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. And by his grace gave uh, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you. In every good deed and word. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, 
Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth, He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightfully so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and all the trials that you are enduring. And finally, and this is our prayer as we close the message. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. On that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And that by his power, he might bring to fruition your every desire for goodness in your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this is so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is our time of invitation. Let's respond to the Lord. However he leads, however he leads, let's respond to the Lord. Would you stand with me? this time of singing and worship together. I want to say to you, if you need prayer this morning, I invite you to come forward and I would love to pray with you. I'll be standing right down here. You can pray where you're at though. You can pray with those next to you. But whatever God has spoken to you, may this be an opportunity that you respond to Him in faith. Let's sing together. Let's worship together. Let's respond together. <laughs>